all of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. You have a beautiful tax return. The nicest one I've ever seen. Okay, folks, but remember your manners. No stampeding. Walk slow, like you do when you come to pay your taxes. Hi, I'm Stephen Dean. This is The Tax Maven. Here we are going to, in each episode, talk to our tax maven, who will be a person proving Archimedes' point that a single person with a lever long enough and a place to put it can change the world. The lever in this case is tax, and the place to put it is here at NYU Law. Today's tax maven is Tatiana Hamanov. She's at NYU's Wagner School, and she will make you truly believe that the devil is in the details. And of course, the tax law to many people seems like nothing but detail. But this does mean that when she discusses her research, such as her paper, Programming Certification Costs, Evidence from SNAP, she has to spend some time explaining those details. SNAP is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or formerly called the Food Stamps Program, which is a means-tested program that's available for low-income households um, and provides them vouchers that can be used to purchase food. And program recertification costs, what, is, what does that refer to? So for all means-tested programs, to ensure program integrity, recipients need to recertify for the program every year, every six months. Um, so in the SNAP program, participants need to show that they have maintained eligibility by providing income recertification for the program um, and um, completing a caseworker interview. So it's just making sure that they still qualify for the program. Uh, uh, they've already qualified, and they're just re-qualifying, recertifying for the program. Exactly. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds easy, uh, uh, but uh, it didn't turn out to be that easy when you looked at the data, did it? Exactly. So we find, and our data is coming from San Francisco, that about 50% of individuals who are on the SNAP program fail recertification in spite of maintaining eligibility. What do you mean? So it looks like these are households that are still eligible for the program, but procedural issues are standing in the way of their recertification. So they still qualify, but it's hard to, uh, for them to do the paperwork or uh, to, to, meet, to, to show that they meet the qualifications, they, even though they do actually qualify. Exactly. So far, Professor Hamanoff hasn't told us anything terribly surprising. We all know what food stamps are, although we may not have known that they are now called SNAP. We all know that paperwork can be an obstacle to qualifying for benefits, and we wouldn't even have been terribly surprised to hear that those most in need of benefits like SNAP would have an unusual amount of difficulty navigating a complex bureaucracy. But Professor Hamanoff, who is an assistant professor of economics and public policy at NYU's Robert F. Wagner School of Public Service, is not interested in telling us what we already know. So we're actually looking at one uh, specific component of the recertification process, which is uh, the interview date on which I am assigned. So every uh, case that is up for recertification for SNAP needs to recertify by the end of a calendar month. Um, I might be assigned a caseworker interview date at the beginning of that calendar month, or I might get a date at the end of the calendar month. And we find that the date that I'm initially assigned, even though I can reschedule for the, the interview for any time I would like, matters a lot for my likelihood of recertifying. So was this very different than what you expected to find? We thought that we sort of went into this assuming that 
some of these procedural issues associated with recertification could stand in the way of, successful re of successfully recertifying. But we thought this was a pretty small, small policy change, whether or not I get an early or a late interview date, especially because I can reschedule them, maybe shouldn't be a big barrier to recertification. And, you know, to, to, to a person who's an outsider to this process, uh, I would suspect that nobody really gave much thought to this uh, element of the recertification process. Yeah, so the interview date assignments are scheduled throughout the month to smooth caseworker workloads. Ah, so they thought about it, but not from the recertifiee Exactly, exactly. Um, and we find that uh, if I'm assigned an interview date at the beginning of the month rather than at the end of the month, I'm nine percentage points more likely to recertify. That's a really big difference. And that's holding steady the uh, eligibility uh, satisfaction, the fact that they actually are qualified. This is people who are the same in every other way other than the date. Exactly. So the interview date that I'm assigned is randomly assigned. So the people who are assigned interview dates at the beginning of the month versus the end of the month should have pretty similar characteristics. This has really got to be due to my interview assignment. So taking a step back from the details, which are you know quite uh, compelling and surprising to me, um, do your conclusions challenge the conventional wisdom about why government programs succeed or fail? Or are you largely uh, proving what we already know? Again, I think that you started out um, the the segment with the right intuition that this is really, you know, shouldn't be difficult. It's just about ensuring program integrity, showing that I'm still eligible for the program. But if that suddenly becomes a barrier to program participation for eligible recipients, we really need to revisit some of the designs of these programs. I I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's really quite quite surprising. Um, would you say, in general, that uh, paperwork tends to be a significant barrier uh, to needy families receiving uh, support, uh, in your experience? Yeah. So there's more and more really fantastic research being done right now showing evidence of exactly that across a wide variety of programs, um, that informational barriers or hassles with paperwork stand in the way of individuals enrolling in or recertifying for a program, um, even when there's quite a bit of money on the table. Okay, Tatiana, can you save us? Uh, how should governments uh, operate to do a better job? Be thoughtful about some of the boring components of program design. Something as, as small as the date that you assign an interview matters quite a bit. How you communicate information about the program and individual's eligibility for the program matter a lot. Professor Hamanoff shows that this unanticipated effect of the interview date assignment might be a real problem. Yeah, so some models will suggest that having an element of complexity in program enrollment, or in our case, uh, program recertification, can be a useful screening mechanism, making sure that the individuals who end up on the programs are the ones that truly value the program the most. Um, what we're actually finding is the households that are less likely to recertify solely because they received a later interview date have characteristics that are associated with higher need. They're more likely to have children in the household. They're more likely to be long-term SNAP recipients, suggesting that these barriers might actually be screening out the neediest households. Well, that's, uh, again, uh, quite surprising. 
So if you had to offer one piece of advice uh, to policymakers based on your research, uh, what would you say? Again, it's think about those boring program details. Make sure that the way that a program is designed is not preventing eligible participants um, from enrolling in the program. And I, I guess the, the, the question that that prompts for me is, if everything matters, I, I feel like what you're telling me is that everything matters, even uh, I, the, the part of the program that nobody would have ever given thought to, except from the perspective of the caseworkers scheduling the interviews, can be really, uh, can be really pivotal. Um, how, how can policymakers know what they, they can't, they have to ignore something. You're telling them now, though, that they can't ignore anything. How can they know what aspects of the program are, are safe to ignore? Or is, there, is it true that, the, that no aspect of the program is safe to ignore or take for granted? I'll try to put a positive spin on that and say <laughs> that policymakers might be focused on you know, funding for a program or expanding generosity or expanding the eligibility criteria. And what our research suggests is that even without changing some of the core components of a program, you can change uh, a participant's interaction with the program quite a bit by thinking about some of these smaller details. Absolutely true from a, a lawyer's point of view, certainly a tax lawyer's point of view, process matters. Um, and exactly. you're showing uh, uh, to an extraordinary degree that even the subtle aspects of process can matter uh, quite, quite a bit. It's very interesting. What Professor Hamanoff's research reveals matters for the tax law and for tax lawyers. So a lot of my work uh, is thinking about how behavioral biases interact with uh, an individual's interaction with a program, with the tax code, with anything that matters for their economic outcomes. Um, that is particularly important when the details of a program are complex. And what's more complex than the tax code? Well, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, so we'll take an example. Uh, some of you, um, the Earned Income Tax Credit is a famously complex provision aimed at helping low-income workers. Uh, what does your research suggest about uh, that provision, for example? So our research would suggest that Things like under-awareness of the program, confusion about eligibility, or just difficulties with signing up for the program can have a big impact on whether or not somebody takes up the EITC. It's, uh, it's surprising, and um, uh, but, but obviously based on uh, the data you presented, uh, hard to argue with. Um, what is a Pigovian tax? Uh, what, what do we mean when we say that? Uh, a Pigouvian tax is a tax that encourages individuals to internalize an externality created by a certain behavior. All right. You're going to have to tell us a little bit more about that. What, what are we? <laughs> and of course, uh, for the cognoscenti, uh, some people say Pigouvian, some people say Pigouvian. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, I think it's potato, potato. I think we could agree to disagree on that one. Um, so... It, we generally think of tax laws um, as ways of ra raising revenue. Um, that's the that's sort of what uh, lay people think about uh, taxes doing. Uh, but do uh, Pigouvian taxes uh, are they aimed at raising revenue or are they aimed at something else? They're usually aimed at changing a behavior. So if a behavior that I take creates some externalities, 
positive or negative, meaning it's a cost or a benefit that I'm not thinking about when I'm choosing the behavior to take, then taxing that type of behavior might cause me to change my behavior in a way that takes into account the fact that I might be imposing cost on you with the behaviors that I take. So let's let's make this uh, more concrete. You've written about um, plastic bag taxes. Uh, are are they uh, so? These are the the taxes that some cities uh, have imposed uh, on uh, uh, the use of plastic shopping bags when you go to the grocery store. Um, are they a good thing? Are they helpful? And and how do they internalize costs? Uh, as you've explained. Yeah. So lots of uh, cities or other municipalities have passed. Uh, taxes trying to discourage the use of disposable shopping bags because the use of those bags creates externalities. If they end up in water sources um, or you know in landfills, that's creating an environmental externality that I might not be thinking about when I'm deciding about taking a new plastic bag. Just a, a cost that you're not required to bear. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. They seem free, but they're not free. If there's, if there's environmental costs associated with me taking a plastic bag, I'm not thinking about that. So do plastic bag taxes help? So what I've found in my research is that really small taxes on disposable bag use, um, around five cents a bag, has a very big effect on my likelihood of taking a plastic bag. So there, there are obviously many ways to go about it. Uh, and um, some stores uh, will give you a little bit of a, uh, a rebate or a discount on your purchase if you don't take a bag. Uh, and, you know, we're all rational human beings here. Uh, and uh, I, of course, know that people are going to respond the same way to, say, a five-cent discount as to a five-cent tax. Uh, uh, so you, either the carrot or, or the stick. Is that true here, or or do people behave in ways that aren't purely rational? That's not what we find. So you might expect, or you know, from the findings that I just told you, that a five cent tax has a big effect on disposable bag use. You might just say there was a lot of people that were on the margin of taking a plastic bag or not, and five cents was enough of an incentive to discourage me from taking a new plastic bag. If that's the case you might expect that a five cent bonus for reusable bag use should do the same thing. If disposable bags and reusable bags are substitutes for one another, both of those are providing me a five cent incentive to use a reusable bag instead of a disposable bag. That's not what I find. What do you find? I find that reusable bag bonuses have a very minimal effect on my likelihood of using a plastic bag compared to a very large effect of a five cent tax, Tatiana, you're 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 blowing me away yet again. Uh, why? Uh, help me, help me understand that. So the findings are consistent with a model of loss aversion, meaning that I experience losses more strongly than I do equivalently sized gains. And if the tax feels like a loss, I'm more likely to change my behavior in response to that policy than a bonus, which feels like a gain. Given the, uh, the issues you're raising, like loss aversion and just general, generally the fact that people don't behave in purely rational ways, I'm hoping you can help me understand something that I've always found uh, irrational. Um, does your research help to explain why people are so happy to receive tax refunds when all tax lawyers truly know 
that this is just money that you've lent to the government without any interest. So you should not, in fact, be happy. Why are people so happy uh, getting a tax refund? Maybe it's not that they're so happy to get a tax refund, but they're so happy to not have a tax liability. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's just the good news of not having uh, to write a check. And and loss aversion would say a lot about that. What would loss aversion say about that? That if I have to pay the IRS money, if I've got a tax liability, that feels like a loss. And... When I get a refund, I'm just so happy that I don't have to cut that check. All right. Well, that was very helpful. I'm, I'm delighted to have a little more insight into a phenomenon that has long uh, just sort of uh, made, made me scratch my head. So uh, I have uh, one more question, uh, which is totally unfair, uh, but um, that's how things are sometimes, as we all know. So the question that I'm going to ask you is based on uh, Beverly Hills Cop, a 1984 movie uh, starring Eddie Murphy. Um, And in this movie, Axel Foley uh, uh, appears to, uh, and I'm quoting here uh, from an article, a 2012 article by Brian Galley, The Tragedy of the Carrots. Uh, He says, uh, Axel Foley, this is Eddie Murphy, appears to wreck most of downtown uh, Detroit uh, in response to a Pagovian tax. Um, And I I don't know... have you seen this movie? I have not, actually. All right, so this is then an even less fair question than I, <laughs> than I imagined, but let's see what we can do here. So maybe your understanding of people's uh, uh, not entirely rational behavior can help you uh, offer you some insights into uh, what kind of Pagovian or sin tax uh, Axel was, uh, was driven by in this case. So I'm going to give you three choices, uh, uh, and you get to choose from one of the three. Um, which of the three was motivating this uh, mayhem um, in Beverly Hills Cop? Uh, So it's either uh, uh, A, cigarettes, B, liquor, or C, carbon. I'm going to say that it's not C. We weren't talking about carbon as much in the 80s. I'm going to go with A, cigarettes. Uh, That is correct. Uh, Nicely done, Tatiana. And uh, uh, for answering the question correctly, I have this beautiful uh, NYU Law graduate tax pencil. Amazing. Um, So I I know you're, like me, a nerd. Uh, so you probably like pencils, uh, perhaps as much as I do. Um, so thank you very much for joining us, Tatiana. We're really grateful, um, uh, grateful to have you here at NYU Law today uh, to present your paper um, at the Tax Policy Colloquium. And thank you so much much for taking a few minutes to uh, sit down and talk to me. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Tax Maven. Uh, and I also want to give a very special thank you to those that helped make the podcast possible. Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, Rebecca Carmichael, Jill Racklin, and Anthony Pietrangelo. The NYU Law Graduate Tax Program has been the premier place to learn about tax law for the past 75 years. So please visit us on the web. Uh, visit our Graduate Tax Program website to see the different programs we offer, uh, both in person and online both for lawyers and non-lawyers. Take a look at what we offer, uh, and I hope you consider joining us. And now, we like to end each of our episodes with a quote about taxes read by one of our students. Our quote today is read by uh, Matthias, a student from Copenhagen, Denmark. And uh, I think, I don't think I need to say any more. I think you'll understand it. Thank you. It is in principle desirable to aim at a uniform interpretation of the same concept in different legal acts. Julian Cocotte, Advocate General at the Court of Justice of the European Union. Please email us at info at taxmavenpodcast.com if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. 
And if you are a student uh, and want to email us a recording of your favorite tax quote, uh, please uh, email it there as well. Thanks for tuning in.